Hello and welcome to episode 51 of my Mavericks podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. This is Charlie Gladstone. This is a conversation with the baker and author and charity worker Tom Herbert. I've known Tom for many years. He's been one of the very few people who has performed at every single Good Life experience. But this is the first time that I have interviewed him properly. We did a brief interview together at the Do Lectures a few years ago when he was holding a workshop and I was speaking. But we've never done a proper one. I don't really know why not, but we haven't. We did this at Camp Glendie, which is a new venture for Caroline and I that we hold near to our home in Kincardineshire in Scotland. And the idea is that we hold residential courses where people come and learn how to do things from experts and they also stay in amazing. I mean, I think it really is wonderful accommodation in an extraordinary place. And we give them great food, seriously good food. And they hang out and they make friends and they do all sorts of things. And this second edition was sold out. And we think that it's possibly the best thing that we've done so far. And we're, we're expanding it into more next year. Um, so you can actually look at those on Glendie cabins and costures that's g-l-e-n-d-y-e cabins and costures our website um, anyway i wasn't really meaning to advertise but i do want to tell you about them because well i want you to come for all sorts of reasons i think you'll enjoy it um, but also i want to tell you about tom herbert this is an incredibly honest and revealing conversation about tom here's a man who has gone from being a really successful uh, public figure, broadcaster, TV star, author, and baker, and businessman, and is essentially, by following his faith, given all that up to do something that he finds much more meaningful. And I agree with him, and I'm really grateful to him for speaking so honestly and so movingly about this. Um, Tom, you are an absolutely remarkable man, honestly, and I hope you enjoy this. Um, so here is me with an extremely croaky voice talking to Tom Herbert at Camp Glendie. So let's start by talking about Camp Glendie, which is where we are now. What you, You've been here for 24 hours, essentially. Yeah. What, what's your impression? Well, it's... Uh, it's wild, that's for a start. The, lo the location? Just the location, the enormous trees, the cold and rushing river, um, and then nestled in amongst that wildness, there's warmth of fires, hospitality, great food, somewhere to watch, you know, modern things like somewhere to watch the rugby. Yes. It's just joyful, so... I feel really relaxed. Yesterday was my first proper day here and I had some work to do, uh, a campfire workshop and what have you, uh, watching rugby, as I said. And at the end of the day, I was just reflecting and thinking, I've definitely got to put that in my top 100 all-time days. Oh, really? How yeah, nice. just it was so... I mean, yeah. that's a ridiculous thing to say, but it just felt like it was a notably good day. Yes, well, we, we, we're, I think it's funny for us because, you know, We've, we've lived here and we've kind of made it because when we came here, it was kind of essentially an abandoned... I mean, yes, it was essentially a largely abandoned glen mm. with 
all houses essentially uninhabitable. Mm. No one, I mean, very few people living here. And, and I, think, I think that we kind of just forget how lovely it is. And then it's really nice when you have a day like yesterday where there, are, there were 40 people and they're all going, my God, what an amazing place. Yeah. Um, and so, but it's interesting because our job really is to, is to bring energy into this glen. And you know that manifests itself through commerce in our in our case, but it's you know it's really energy, isn't it? Mm. Because I, I'm just so I'm so I think these places are nothing if there aren't people in them. Sure. Anyway, so sort of spooling right back, Tom. You, you know you're here doing um, your masterful baking on the fire, mm. and I just want to sort of start to find. I, I want to kind of most of this conversation to be about what you're doing with your life now, which is what I find most interesting. Mm. But you, you, you grew up in a family of bakers, obviously, with yeah. a lot of children. Talk, just talk to me a bit about that. Well, so I'm the eldest of six, um, a fifth-generation baker, and I grew up above Hobbs House Bakery in Chibbing, Sobbury. Um, so it's an old butcher's house, with a butchery downstairs that's been there 500 years. It's mentioned in... Fox's Book of Martyrs as a grisly story for, I can tell you around the campfire tonight. Perhaps. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and so there's been a food presence there on the high street forever. It's got that sense of history. And Fifth generation, so when was the first of well, your... Well, the, well, we've traced it back. I've seen um, a copy of my great-grandmother's birth certificate, 1884, I think. Um, somewhere not so far um, in... Um, sort of out Swindon way and her dad's occupation is listed as a baker so that's how we know it's at least how that extraordinary. many extraordinary mm. could so, be more so did you did you always know that you had to be a baker or did you always want to be a baker or? I always wanted to be did you because living upstairs I could hear the you know the life downstairs with my dad and uncles working together the smells wafting up the sound of music you know Bruce Springsteen on the Ghetto Blaster. It's kind of early 80s. And as a young boy, you just want to be in the action. And occasionally I was allowed to jam the donuts. My granddad established a Guinness World Record for the fastest ever loaf. And I got to go on the helicopter that took off from the farm where he grew and grew his own wheat. You know, so it, it was a fun, like hard work. Like dad was just at work, um, but then he was downstairs so we could see him. Um, Baking is particularly hard in its um, antisocial hours, isn't sure. it? Sure, yeah, yeah. So I suppose because of that and then growing up and then choosing that path really against everyone else's advice, you know, you should... Everyone really, else, what, being all your friends? Teachers, right, yeah. friends staying at school to maybe go to university. Um, I really had to make, you know, choose baking, go to baking college and that what was told is really hard hours, shifts, all that kind of thing. And so that became what I did for a long time, sort of despite everyone pointing out the obvious that it's really hard work. And, but um, you but grew, under your guidance, you grew the business a fair bit, did you? Oh, hmm. Well, it certainly grew, has grown a lot since I've been there, which is, I don't know, a very long time, 25 years or more. And So how many branches do you have? Well, there? so there's uh, five shops, um, in and around Bristol and in the south of Cotswolds. Um, and then a lot of wholesale business, to, you know, farm shops, delis, hotels and restaurants, that kind of thing. And is that yeah. all cooked? Does each bakery or yeah. shop yeah. have its own bakery in it? Well, um, they each have their own kitchen and make their own cakes and patisserie. 
and then the bread comes from the central bakery there's real benefit in having you know that skill concentrated and the equipment you need to do it really well mm. yeah yeah. And then and then something kind of I imagine quite unexpected happened to you and your brother um yeah. and and you you suddenly became celebrity bakers. I mean I, right, I, yeah. I, I actually I I've never really followed that story. I mean right. I was very I was aware of you and in fact yeah. I came to see you speak at um Hay Festival I suppose about Oh really? 10 yeah. years ago possibly. Yeah, right. Okay. We, we were Long before, you know yeah. some way before we met. I think you were just you were in that. What well, how did that come about? Well so for me, it felt like it was quite an intentional thing because having chosen baking, um, one of the first things I remember noticing, I was probably 19 and I'd been baking all night, loading the shelves in, in the shop with bread, hot bread. And then just noticing that all the customers like, all right, Joan, you know, and hello, Phyllis, and all come for their dailies and regulars. And that's really nice, but it suddenly dawned on me, they're all really old. And if I don't find a way of, making what I love or sharing what I love with people more my age then I'm going to be out of a job by the time I'm 30 just doing some simple maths like they and um so I immediately became aware it started to arise in me this awareness that well we really need to find a way of engaging and showing what I love about baking with much younger people so that started to be well we can make great sandwiches out of it sit it alongside coffee, um, do baking courses, you know, let people get hands-on with it. Um, Anna and I opened um, our bakery in Nailsworth, which is still there, and we put the bakery, the shop in the bakery, so people could really see it being made. And that Sorry, started when was to work. this, Tom? That was that... Sort of, well, Anna and I got married really young, and um, it was early 2000, like 2000, 2001, yeah, yeah. something like that. And it really started to work. We won awards. People wrote about us um, because we were trying to make it accessible and something that people would desire. And um, yeah, so that was the that so, was the part so of interesting them. actually because I mean so we'll come on to how mm. how that kind of led to TV. But mm. isn't it funny how it you would never have imagined at that point that baking and bread would become you know a really fashionable thing i mean i use fashionable not in a you know not mm. in a not in a derisory sense mm. i mean you know it's become a huge thing now yeah yeah so we simply seen, wasn't no so we've seen that and like i tried to get work experience at baker and spice which dan leopard was head baker at and that i was 19 and i'd uh, bought a scooter you know they'd never seen them before and worked out how i was going to commute uh, like a country mouse going up to the city and uh, the weekend before, they realised, you know, my connection to Hobbs House. I mean, I was open about it, but they're like, no way, you're not coming here. And so, that, you know, it was hard for me as a kid to find out, well, how do I learn about it? With, um, I, you know, knew about Poilin, who'd then just opened in Belgrave. And my dad used to take us to visit his bakery, which had a, a Dali um, bread chandelier in his office upstairs and... You know, so we'd always be, as a family, always interested in, like, where, where is it happening? Who's doing, yes. like, really pushing it? Yes. And that was the invitation for me, like, bake it on fire, uh, you know, strip out all the superfluous in ingredients, um, show people as directly as possible uh, the process. So to an extent where you, you, you felt that the kind of the, the baker and spice thing, it was, it was crazy of them 
to, to say that someone who was a baker couldn't come see them. I mean, did you want to try to demystify it? Is that well, what it saying? gave me something to push against, I suppose, because I, I had the book and loved it and tried all the recipes. And then they seemed in the first instance open to me going as a young baker and getting, you know, really experiencing it for myself. But then because that way of baking was so rare and that we were interested, I guess that was threat. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it happened. It was a long time ago. I've met all of them since. I mean, I, I think it's just uh, intriguing because... But it, in, as a young kid, it like, it makes you think, right, well, there's something here that's been protected. I'm going to find that out. You know, I'm going to suss this out for myself. And then you find that by trying to make something with just three ingredients, all of a sudden people with wheat intolerance can eat a rye sourdough. People with, you know, that are avoiding yeast can have a, uh, um, a rye sourdough. Um, the miller told me that you could never make bread just with rye flour, make it rise. And so I had to try and prove that I could. And you put all that together and all of a sudden you've got a product that, a, a bread that people want. And then that meant that we set up a mail order business because people wanted it that weren't near where we were. And then it wins Organic Loaf of the Year twice in a row. And, you know, so, you build yes, momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you and Anna uh, were uh, set up your own bakery yeah. and the family bakery was going well. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly one of your brothers was involved as well at yes. this stage. Yeah. And, 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 um, and everything, you know, you're running a really good, very forward thinking business. But, but it's quite local. How, how did that, who came and said, come and do a TV programme? Well, first, uh, I think it was Mary Portis picked up on what w was going on. Uh, she had a show called, um, oh, something about the high, uh, yes. yeah, the high street, Queen of, I don't know, Queen of Shops. Mary, no, was it, was that when she was doing a thing for the government? No, it was when, basically, she brought some bakers to us from Wimbledon that were doing it the old way and she brought them to us as an exemplar so there was that and that was just like it was such an honor and so mate like you couldn't dream a better advert to show off all the best bits you were doing i did a similar thing for one of the original dragons dens like a business turnaround bought someone so we became kind of uh examples of how you might do a bakery and that built our profile henry's 10 years younger than me his brother number he's number five in the uh list and um he'd he and i w would always work really close together he'd help out on a saturday and so on and he went to westminster catering college and ended up and did really well one student of the year got a place at the gavroche which he hated and realized he wanted to do nose to tail more st john kind of stuff uh blagged a job as a chef at 19 and no one thought to ask him his age he's a big chap with a beard massive hair <laughs> And, you know, he just ended up, landed up with this impossibly overstretching job. Uh, great British menu. Meanwhile, I'm doing these other things. And so the idea, w what really nailed it was that the butcher sadly died, Mr. Nelson. He's a, um, a real character in the high street. And so the worry was the butchery would be lost to the high street and it'd be turned into a card shop or something. So my dad asked Henry, who'd just got married himself, would you um, come back and run the butchery? And he did. And so we were working next door to each other, the butcher, the baker. And um, yeah. So he, we was had... a, he, was, he was a trained butcher at this point. Well, or, he'd, or he'd, he'd just done loads of it. He'd, yeah, he wasn't a trained butcher, but he'd done loads of, you know, he'd order a whole 
carcass of something and work his way through it. He knew what to do. And your dad asked him, not because your dad had a connection to the butcher, but because he just believed it was important to have the butcher and the baker. Yeah, and maybe for Henry, recently married, working as a chef, he and his wife didn't ever see each other hardly, a chance to... So anyway, that worked out, and we ended up with five different TV production companies being interested in that story. So it kind of felt like, well, something's going to happen here, and then it did. And it did. Yeah. But, but it was mainly about baking. Yes. So, well, there were pies and other aspects to it. There, it was such a, um, you know, in the lead up to that, I suppose what I was starting to answer earlier and lost my thread was that knowing that the customers were getting older and we had to find a younger customer base, um, a book would be an amazing way of sharing what we do. Um, and a, a TV series was almost too much to think about but obviously that reaches the biggest audience so by the time the opportunity came round I had 10 years worth of cookery school experience trying to work out how does what I know apply in people's homes and what do they want to know so that conversation was very well developed the recipes were there we were it didn't happen by accident like lots came together I'm not sure you could recreate it, it was very fortunate that it happened but also you you know I mean you were made for TV. I mean, you, that, you know, there must be, I mean, it's all very well doing these, you know, essentially really worthy and cool things, but if you're yeah. not charismatic, then you wouldn't right. have got that. Program. Well, hard for me to say other than that, you know, I genuinely love what I do and I, and I get a real kick out of sharing it and seeing that cat being caught by someone else. So, to, you know, TV is a great place to be able to do that. And, and then, and then you, your books, then presumably became the TV, you know, that related to the TV programs. Yes. And they did really well, right? They did, yeah, yeah. So um, in the first year, just shy of 100,000 were sold of our first book, which is... Incredible. And, we, and they had to print them, so the, the whole thing was exciting. We got commissioned early October for Channel 4 with Heston as the, like, the show beforehand. So his was 7.30 and ours was at 8. Uh, going and it was to go out January the 4th and it's the quickest ever turnaround from commission to transmission of a food show at the time and Betty TV just pulled together a crack team of people that worked on Nigella and Anna Jones was the home ec we didn't even know what home ec what like we thought we were having to do all this ourselves so it was a real eye-opener and they told us um, we've got a book deal um, to go alongside and um, you know, there was various percentages offered for if you had your photo on the front or your name and your photo. And we said we didn't want either unless we could write the book. And we had 12 days to do it. And so we pulled it out of the bag. It was, you know, we pulled all-nighters. You wrote a book in 12 yeah, days? Yeah, to, together, the two of us. We're both dyslexic, so it wasn't without challenges. Our sister had got, has got an English degree and she edited the whole thing in a kind of three-day manner. So you actually physically did write it? So you didn't yeah. dictate it or whatever? No, we did dictate... Uh, the, in, the opening chapter is like an interview that an editor did for both of us. So, I mean, it was a bit of a team... It was a team effort, um, but it was great fun. And because it had to be done so quickly, they couldn't print it in China where they normally would. It had to be printed in Froome. So my son Milo and my dad and I went down to the factory to see it coming off. And that was my first realization of like what this all means from when I heard it had been commissioned and like jumping up and down doing um a happy dance in the bakery office like some kind of idiot um the next thing was just absolute gobsmackingness of seeing 40,000 books coming through a machine but the whole thing everywhere. sounds like it was a machine yeah I mean it was obviously a huge sort of mechanics behind 
the, the yeah we the were chucked into the spotlight yeah. yeah how old were you at that point um hmm well maybe about early 30s yeah so and and and, and your bro 10 years younger yeah so he was in his early so 20s so what, what was that was that i mean obviously you know remarkable brilliant success yeah. and all the rest of it but but it must have been it must have come with its stresses yeah sure suddenly going from running a business yeah. to running a business and being doing a tv show yes. and doing a book and presumably Family. having to do tours and family and everything yeah. I mean, did that have its impact or not really well i think we we were able to like doing it together was a massive help so we kind of you know there's less room for bullshit you, you know you call it out in each other and at the same time you can celebrate it and pinch each other and go wow this is amazing so we got to travel around the world and it got picked up by discovery channel and they we did three se- series in the end and uh it went really well in Southeast Asia. So it was great. We got to sh- like uh, show off some of our food friends that are doing amazing things. Um, yeah. And seeing people take the recipes and make them their own and tell us that they bake the beef wellington and then ask the father-in-law for the, you know, whether they could get married or not. You know, all those kind of things. You think, oh my goodness, this really has... But isn't it, life of its, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you talk about that security that, that working with your brother created. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear that both your family that you were a child in mm. and your family you have with Anna, I mean, you're very family-orientated yeah. yeah. people. So, that yeah, that was a stress. Like, we were away for nine weeks at a time each summer for about three or four years. And that's hard to hold down a job like being a director of operations at the time for me. And, and a family. Sales, and a family. Especially with young children. Yeah, so what I do now has been a response to that tension in some ways. So that's, I suppose that's what I was kind of getting at. I mean, yeah. these, you know, these things, I think when, you, when I look at someone like you, I mean, I know better, but I, I you know, amazing three TV series, mm. books selling 100,000, successful bakery. You know, it sounds superficial as if you're living the life of Riley. But in reality, actually, it's a lot harder. Well, yeah, it's only hard the bits that make you not feel yourself or take you away from where there's disconnect from what resonates most deeply. I think my... My experience was yeah. I was managing a band when we had yeah. three young children yeah. and I was away for long periods and, and, and actually it was, there was a real disconnect. I mean, I could not be a great father yeah, right. and husband and manage a band. They were not, they, no, the two compatible. for me were mutually exclusive. So I, I actually sold my um, management company just like, you know, literally like that yeah. to my partner because I just realised that I couldn't do it. And I... And I, I do think, you know, that's a very hard time anyway when you have yeah. young children. So, and, and maybe there's an added danger to that of the, uh, the hype that goes and the excitement that goes around the buzz of, I don't know, being in the spotlight for a bit or being celebrated in that way. So, um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying you had to have, I'm just intrigued it, by there's the... definitely There's definite tensions. I mean, my dad, as the things were starting to go, I remember having a conversation with him on the phone. I was on a train and we kept losing each other, having to bring each other up again. And he was sort of warning me, be really careful about this next step. It was to do a, a series in America. Like how, remember your commitment to Anna and the kids. And 
you know, we won't think any less of if you don't take this opportunity. And so because of that, Anna and I then did a marriage course, which was like sold as a, the local church was doing, sold as an MOT for your marriage. And that, that in itself, like, it was good, but it was more important that we named, okay, there's things that people have learned in the services when they do a three-month tour about when you get, what to do while you're away and when you come back together. There's, you think that's going to, the guy in being away, uh, in my instance, I heard a story from someone else, you know, you build up this romantic idea of going back and what that means. And Anna's had the kids and also has a job and was running a little business, you, you know, uh, the expectations are completely unmet. So it was really great to have that. Like We were proactive about managing it, trying to think, well, what have other people learned? Well, that's very interesting because, I, you see, I, I completely failed at that. Right. I, I, I think I, 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 you, you said exactly the problem that I had, but I hadn't really figured out yeah. you know, how not to be welcomed back like a hero just because I'd been on the road for two weeks, you know. <laughs> Drinking in nice bars. <laughs> <coughs> well, I mean, working. Well, but, yeah, you I know. know yeah, I, mean, but I, I, think, I think, you know... There's a was, mismatch. It's it? Very, it was a mismatch, exactly. Yeah. So so I, I've always said, you know, I would not have had six children if I carried on in the yeah. in the music business. Anyway, so let, let's, let's kind of talk about... So I, I think, you know, you are... You know, you, you, you've, you've done remarkable things. You are still a, a celebrity baker, but you're really a baker baker. But actually, that's not what you're dedicating your life really to now, is it? No. Um, so, basically, I got to a point where um, I had questions uh, on my heart that I couldn't answer or figure out how I would answer where I was in the family business context. And those questions had started to arise as, as Henry and I were out and about so much. Uh, he and I um, agreed that when we got offers to do charity stuff, we would kind of do them separately because then we could spread the love more, right? So I, gave, I was invited to give a talk for a friend, Al Gordon, um, at... Um, a leadership conference at the Royal Albert Hall and the top the subject was uh, creativity and work and I thought I only did it because he's a mate and I didn't I thought what on earth do I know about that so I decided to use baking as a metaphor I took ingredients up on stage and the really bit that I was excited to share was how as creative people people that need to be creative we're all creative I think that we need to resting, like resting the dough is such an important part of that. Anyway, that was my like, the bit that I thought up. In the audience were some, that really just in the going there and uh, and after that talk or whatever you'd call it, workshop or something, um, so many things happened. And one was that there were some guys from a charity, uh, international development charity called Tear Fund there. And they said, they loved the talk, would I be interested in visiting some bakeries that they ha are working with? One in Haiti, I can't remember the other, one in somewhere in Africa, I'm not sure. So I said, well, and they asked if I could do it with Henry. And I said, well, we don't really do that together, but I would love to do that. And is there any chance I could, instead of Henry, I could take one of my kids? So that was sort of, I really wanted to share that experience with traveling with my family and not just all the time with Henry, who I love, but it's not the same thing. So they said yes. And as that got closer, it became um, about a, 
uh, a project called No Child Taken, which was um, anti-child trafficking. And um, Milo and I got to, a few months later, go to Laos and bake with girls that had either escaped trafficking or at risk of trafficking. And... Um, and so help them share you, you what You were I trying like. to get them to set up micro-businesses. Yeah, micro-businesses, really. like five quid for just a bowl and some ingredients to get going. You can make stuff from the market there, add value to it, and then have your own business. And on the basis that you're less likely to, to get involved in trafficking if you have a, a exactly. source of Exactly. If you have income. a source of income, there's less reason to leave your family, the safety of your family in your village. So this was the... And we saw it working well with hairdressing, motorbike repair... So I was there to offer some kind of baking solution. At the same time, Milo and I, with our two very different perspectives, one nearly a teenager and then me, to share, because it was filmed, with the people back in the UK, what the work of Tier Fund with their partners on the ground, what kind of thing it is. And it was about, I'd summarise it by saying, not a charity giving people a fish, but um, giving people a hand up rather than a hand out, give someone a rod and show them how to fish. And I hadn't really experienced that in that way before. And it really started to answer something in me and show me that there is real potential for this thing I love. Not just about, you know, before the TV stuff, I was on uh, a quest for perfection, winning awards at making the best bread I could. My first ever TV thing was called In Search of a Perfect Loaf, a one hour documentary on BBC Four, where I got to really exhaust that thing of perfection. It's a type of madness and it's quite a lonely endeavour and it sets you apart from other people. And, and baking, what I love, the word companion, it means with bread. So the people we have shared bread with, so companion. Yeah, no, I've Ian, never thought of it. Never Ian is a that. doing thing. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is at the heart of what I love. It's about people together in the making and the baking and the sharing of bread. And this is where it kind of, my faith that I was brought up with comes alive because um, there's something about that gathering together of people achieving more than's possible on your own a sense of connecting in with a much bigger story of humanity and how we're better off when we're together and what food and bread in particular is uniquely good at doing because the baking that's enjoyed a lot of profile with the bake-off and so on is very competitive uh, it can be really sweet and perhaps desirable, but not maybe wholesome. And there's something about a good loaf that really brings people together in a non-shouty way that aids the gathering. And so I suppose as I started doing, you know, we went to Laos and then a couple of years later, I went to Brazil with my daughter B, the Tier Fund 2. And we baked in the favelas and we were there to find out about the circular economy and examples Tier Fund were doing with that. And that got me thinking, this is so awesome. How can I build that into what I do at work? And so I had a go. But, you know, the, the Hobbs House is such a beautiful old ship. It's 100 years old next year. And it has its course and it can be nudged a little bit, perhaps. And it's, you know, but it's a beautiful thing and I love it. And I kind of felt that with these questions I had that started to rise me doing the tear from work and just being aware, I guess that I couldn't work out how to answer them where I was without risking damaging that old ship. And my two younger brothers, Henry and uh, George, had become established in the bakery. There, you know, there's a lot of us there. My wife is still a director there of marketing. 
By damage, you mean that you 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 were you felt you might overimpose your your charitable notions and your current interests on a business, but it was yeah. important that business carried on working. Was it? Yeah, maybe maybe um, wasn't so much to do with charity, although that was my way of seeing it. Charitable, it do, I said. Yeah, I mean, it's not like to, seeing you know, well, how can a business really uh, like ours really answer some of the needs there are in society? You know, seeing the food bank situation, seeing how you know, badly we're served by the food typically. But you felt that if you imposed those ideas, yeah. whatever we call them, charity or, yeah, or just yeah, yeah, general yeah, okay. society or community, mm. that, that would that would maybe damage the Hobbs House Bakery from... Mm, that wasn't my concern. I think it was more that I doubted I had enough trust to say to everyone as I took over from my... was lined up to take over from my dad. Uh, come with me, we're going in this direction. And I could, and I've seen what it does to people when, you know, if, if I ended up being frustrated and not answering that, then I know what that feels like because the TV stuff's a bit of a persona that you end up living out of. And I, I'm more interested in trying to understand what uniquely I can bring. And so I was really horrified at the idea of not being able to be myself. Right. Okay. And, yeah. and not, and that sounds grandiose. It's like no, it doesn't. It's like. I feel like I've been, you know, that God for each of us has something special and unique and it's our uh, task here on this earth, on this life, to work out what that is and, yes, you know, and make that shine or whatever, or do that thing. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do that. So I thought, well, rather than, given there's two brothers that are already here that have so much energy and ideas and they, they're loving where it's going... If I'm going to be, rather than set up in competition with them, I ought to trust that this thing that I have to do is needs to happen and will happen. And then I felt like I was stepping out of the boat. So this is, you know, so that's been a real kind of a live image for me. And it's a biblical one of Peter stepping out of the boat when he walks out to Jesus. And that's obviously people say, oh, it's not possible. But as a, an emotional thing, to step out is very scary and it's been terrifying and I've rarely felt more alive. So terrifying because you were saying goodbye to Hobbs House and, and the Herbert business. Yeah, try not to damage that or those relationships. Yes, like we're still makes complete sense. And so, t so, so what are you doing today? What is your, what's, you know, what's your yeah. thing then? So, well, I, uh, I've founded with a friend a social enterprise called The Long Table, which brings people together around the making and sharing of great food. So how does The Long Table... I mean, I know you've literally yeah. just launched it officially yeah. in the last month. T tell, tell, tell me kind of a bit more, I mean, about it. Can I... Yeah, so... Where, what really got at heat when I'd stepped out of the boat is um, I left and I was... Oh heck, now what do I do? I had no plan. Um, I did a few things that I'd wanted to do but hadn't had time to. So I went and joined my uncle in Calais at the Refugee Community Kitchen and we baked together. Uh, Twelve of us volunteered. The RCK has just won an Observer Food Award for its work. So anyway, there was 12 of us volunteers cooking 3,000 hot meals every day and, and the way it was served was done with such dignity 
and the food was all donated and it blew my mind. There's nothing I've ever seen on any business plan that matches the effort and the outcomes of that. And I thought, this is really interesting. I've only, when you step out of that context, all of a sudden you start seeing other things. And I was broken. I couldn't go back. I was like, well, what is really needed in businesses and what we do, maybe that's confusing to say, but I just think what we ought to do in our life, if we can, is find our connection to that purpose that brings something that's needed in the world and then just apply ourselves to that. And it unleashes a huge amount of energy and capacity that might not be there if you're acting out a role yes. trying to do what people th- are expecting of you in a I don't know corporate or work like situation so that was the first thing I got to write the book with do lectures which um a do book do while baking which um I had worked out how to have make time for before so that, that was, was always your thing wasn't it yeah do it was it. like I, in a way it felt like in my mind it was a bit of a bookend because Henry and I had a lot of recipes we'd done for our show and hadn't put into a book so that was a good start I had some of my own and I was thinking, well, that would just finish off, close off this chapter. But of course, what it's done is it's then led into other things in a way of cooking and baking. And so at the end of a year of being really out in the wilderness, trying things, I went to Germany and learned about milling with Wolfgang Mock and did some recipe development stuff for different businesses. I, I was able to kind of make my way, but I, it was desperately lonely. Um and because you felt you separated from yeah your your birth family as it were yeah yeah and and everything they it was so yeah it was quite a dark like in the lead up to it and there's another whole story there and you can ask me if you're interested but I met just before I left I actually decided to leave while I was in Helsinki with my two brothers at a tech conference we were guests of PwC come on tell, tell, tell me so my Henry had done an interview and lots of work with PwC. We were doing a report on family businesses. And as a, re- a reward or payment, they said, oh, come to this tech conference. There's going to be loads going on in Helsinki. Um, and the three of us could go. So anyway, it was a bit of a jolly, I suppose. But my dad, knowing that there were such big issues around succession in our family as there are in any business, uh, he's like, well, you know, you kind of need to use this as an opportunity to bang your heads together and work out how you're going to make this work. And we went for a sauna. It was the first time we'd been naked together since we were in the bath, <laughs> you know, at the age yes, of whenever. Yes. And uh, so there was sort of that de-robing yeah. in all sorts of ways. And like, right, it's just us, what are we here to talk about. We went for a meal and I had things, these questions welling up in me and they were so animated about what needed to happen. I remember just like watching them for about a quarter of an hour talking, thinking they've totally got this. Like, I'm not sure where my voice fits into this conversation. I can right? step right out of it. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first thing. Then the very next day, we went to this um, talk. And there was a guy there, Andrew, Dr. Andrew Bastawas, an eye surgeon who delivered it. He's on TED, I would urge you to look at it on TED Talks. He's done two. Mind-blowing. It's just a, a, Dr. Andrew. Dr. Andrew Bastawas. And okay. his uh, organization is called Peak Vision. And um, his what he was doing is just he uh, like emerging in a very powerful way, and basically at the age of thirty, with a with a one year old child, he and his wife, he was offered a consultancy as an eye surgeon, and his family had fled at Egypt as the Coptics, 
and they wanted him to do, you know, because he'd been hothoused, they wanted him to do that. And he decided instead to go against that and go to Kenya, where access to eye care is 100 times worse in the UK, to do 100 eye clinics. And they raised 150,000 on Kickstarter to buy kit, took it over and did 100 clinics. It took them 18 months. And while he was there, he worked out an amazing answer to how people that can't see in the world that cause that costs four trillion in lost i don't know economy yeah apparently. whatever yeah it's yes, a huge yeah. thing because if someone yes has cataracts or something that could be fixed but just can't afford to that takes not only them out but someone has to lead them around so he was really exercised by this thing he'd also as a child not been able to see properly until it was diagnosed he was you know called thick until they realized he just needed glasses you couldn't see the board and so he had this sort of burning question in him. And while they'd done it, um, this amazing thing, he invented what's now become peak vision and a way of combining tech with um, uh, aid that's released to whoever's delivering the aid uh, once they show that someone's had the treatment. Um, this is a new way of right, delivering okay. aid. So a billionaire philanthropist can say a million people have got their eyesight back and you can say where they are on a map and who they are. So he'd kind of worked out these big things, but in, in the background, um, they'd also set up a bakery in Kenya to, this is the end of his talk that blew my mind. I've seen loads of do lectures and stuff. So I reckon that a good, good nose for uh, an authentic and, uh, and great talk. And his was one of, by far one of the best ones. And um, he finished his talk by saying, we set up this bakery, we've done what we can with it, the idea was to raise funds for eye care locally, but there's just a few things we can't work out. And if there's anyone in this large audience that could help with that, let us know. And that was really a hallelujah for, moment for me. There's been so many where I felt like... How extraordinary. Um, the, the path's been opened up. So I went and saw him. We immediately fell in love. There's a like bromance started. And within, and I went back and said, okay, I, I got to go. Um, I had my family's blessing. They thought I was mad. They're like, what's the plan? I'm, like, I'm off to Kenya. So I went with Andrew like three or four weeks later and we've worked together since. And he's, you know, challenged me with, you know, we, we were having breakfast one morning, seeing what he's doing and how I might help. And he said, well, you've got to work out the why and the hows come afterwards. And it's such an easy thing to understand and such an impossible thing to try and do. And I can only say that it's been possible because Anna's been so supportive. She saw, she knows me good and bad. And she was worried that I was becoming numb and a bit, um, not, you know, not fully alive as I was carrying these questions and not being able to answer them. And so uh, Andrew has helped you he in that showed sense, me but, that, but that led to the long table. Obviously. Yeah, it did. Yes. Yeah. Because so th this adventure, we, you know, we step out, we start doing things and then it all, I ran out of money and out of steam and out of, I tried some things that didn't really work and my gaps, became, my holes, myself became hugely exposed when I tried to set something up by myself. It's embarrassing and quite humiliating and I ended up at the end of that year promising Anna I'm going to apply for three jobs today and um what, because you couldn't get it off I the couldn't, ground? I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And, um, and the, the, I, I hold my faith very, you know, just here. It's not something I want to 
proselytise about or anything. But it was a moment where I was literally brought to my knees and in my kitchen it suddenly became a, it felt like a hostile place that didn't have any answers. And I cried out to God, like, I must be really thick. You must be giving me loads of... Uh, uh, Indicators. Yeah, what to do. And I'm just really thick. I can't see what to do. You're going to have to treat me like an idiot. Just show me. And that was, I felt a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. I was literally on my knees. I felt like that's where I had to be. I had to kind of give up, come to the end of myself. And I got up. I felt the weight lifted off me. I sat back down at my desk thinking, right, I'm going to apply for these jobs. And a little alert pinged up, you know how they do on the side. And it was from a fellow tier fund guy called Pete Gregg. And it was a five minute talk about why he doesn't like worship music. I mean, it was obscure and... I, but I, like, I really like this guy and his book Dirty Glory really had influenced me. And um, so I followed the link and it said that unless you're really answering the cries of the, those worst off in our society, you're probably not following Jesus. I thought, oh, that's an interesting. So immediately before applying for the jobs, I rung Will, who ran the food bank locally, or at least I thought he did, he doesn't. Things have moved on. I, he's not a friend or wasn't at the time. I just knew him. So I rung him and I'd rung him twice before he never answered. And this time he did answer. I had his, uh, you know, a messenger. You, you can phone someone on messenger. I didn't have his mobile number. And it sounded, to, he says it sounded like the Batmobile phone. And he answered and they had just been looking at this really large space. There's a very small team of social enterprises that shares a space with Food Bank that he set up years ago. And they had been talking that morning about expecting someone that like when you need someone, if you pray about it, God often send you someone. And uh, the, the story is about a youth, e, Ethiopian eunuch. Anyway, in this story, I'm the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay. I'm not sure I feel very comfortable <laughs> about that. But anyway, uh, needless to say, they were expecting someone and I felt this prompt to call him. I called him and he said, well, you can't volunteer, but can you come down now? So I said, yes. So I went down and we looked around this massive space and I'd been looking at spaces on my own, just feeling that they were empty, daunting. And all of a sudden, here's a team looking to do something and I'm not looked back. And the day I would have taken over as CEO of the family business, which has you know, been going 100 years, has 180 people that I love dearly, the ones I know, if you're listening. I don't know, <laughs> a lot of them have changed. There's been a few new faces since I left, but I love that dearly. And... Um, here were some people that needed what I was looking to do. And what you could do. And what I maybe could do. And um, I took a 10-hour job on minimum wage for kids stuff, which is one of the social enterprises for mums and children. They were advertising, thinking, you know, they might get a mum that wanted to get back into work. And poor Vicky, she got me. Will's like... Celebrity break, Baker. Yeah, and she was horrified at the idea. And I said, this is so awkward. Um, but tell me, what are your values... And like, how do you describe what it is that you do? And she'd, she's got an amazing story. I'll let her, you find out about that. It's not really for me to say, but she's got an amazing story of renewal or rebirth or redemption or uh, herself. And she lives that out. And she um, shared a, um, just a little a few lines from a psalm about how God drags us out of the mire and puts our foot on a solid stone. And that's what I wanted to feel. Because the mire is like the place where you don't know, you can't see. Life's heavy. 
on a stone, which sometimes is Jesus, or just that like, this is what I'm going to stand on. But then there's a bit that just made me weep. And that is, he put a new song in my mouth. And here, it may, all of a sudden I could see that the people I work with and are now friends of mine, they have a new song. And they're not all, they don't all share our faith. It's like, a, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. It's, um, well, it's a secular thing. But um, there's a story of like hope and renewal. And that, what would it look like to put food here? And they'd done something before, but it had gone off. So we started a weekly meal that became, and I started to share my dream of, you know, from sniffing clothes, baby clothes for sick in this cold warehouse on seven something an hour um and that's where will and i really i found he was someone that i could trust and share my dreams with in a way that i hadn't even known how to do with with my brothers perhaps because we know each other too much and they're like no you can't do that look at you remember when you messed up and screwed up with that like there's just but somehow will called that out of me and allowed me to start to share my dream I had all these notes about the long table and he's like let's do it so we pulled the furniture together from the furniture back made a long table I bought my barbecue from home and we put it on immediately realized that I couldn't make a living out of this so I then did van driving for a bit and learned what it means to sit alongside someone who a youngster would otherwise be in prison I told you some stories about that um and all of a sudden my life feels really full there's great people with from crazy different backgrounds from me do some you feel like i mean I, I that that that's amazing and, and wonderful do you feel like you're you i mean because you've got lots of skills mm. and and you're you know you've talked very eloquently there about your you know your, your sense of mission your sense of purpose and you've also got some business skills and they're coming to the forefront you you're a skilled baker but clearly one of your other skills is your charisma do you, do you feel you're you know i mean yesterday you were doing your baking out on the campfire at yeah the, i love uh, it Glen die and you still do some of that but yeah. but is your is do you bring that to your job or have you almost said goodbye to kind of tom herbert the sort of what? charisma man that everybody loves or is so, that still part of your there's role b- like the team want there's bits where i'm encouraged to push so i handed over instagram to our first hire at the long table just because um nancy's done it uh she was selling um, makeup before and doing it. I, I'd sort of seen it and done quite well being active on social media. And the first thing, one of the first things she did was to post up a picture of me. And I had to take it down. <laughs> it was really painful. Like, what, was, because you... Well, I was like, well, I'm on there and I don't, I'm not ashamed of that, but it's like, it, it's much more, I feel what I'm being called to do is hold a space for things to thrive. And if I allow myself too much to the front, like I do a talk at the beginning of every meal, I, I get to exercise and do what I love doing. And other people don't seem to want to do it as much. And I'm trying to find ways where they can work out what's their gift, unique gift. To, yes, but Tom, but, but, but you know, you are, I mean, I, you know, you are incredibly good at that comparing, talking. Mm. I mean, you, you, you know, you mustn't, I, I would hate as a friend to see you lose that. Yeah. Maybe you just don't want to do it. Well, it's exciting. I feel like there's just so many new stories to find. I'm finding new recipes, new ways of doing things, old assumptions being torn down. We, we hosted um, XR's, some of their founders meal. They came and, they, they couldn't, there wasn't space at the long table, so they had to kind of sit out. 
outside, uh, Extinction Rebellion. Oh, sorry. You know, yeah, before yes. their recent activity, people are coming to see what's happening. ITV News filmed us this week because we've started this thing called The Longest Table. We've made a pack available so people can do their own long tables. And that's just gone crazy. And we're going to add them all together and see how long a table we can make. And they wanted us to shift the time of the meal. And we, we couldn't. There's something that has momentum. It's so exciting. And I've no idea whether it'll work or what it'll end up looking like. But I also don't... But the idea is to, is to train people and to feed people. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so, you're, you're, so everyone is gaining, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And trying to work out, well, what, what is your offer and how do you bring to that? And I, I, I know, I'm aware that I have agency in that. And for, an, I just, I just trust that there'll be time for the good stories and some true things to come out, and then when the time's right, we can share what we found in this new world. I think it's very interesting because what I'm thinking at the moment is, you know, okay, how do how do you know in the things that you and I do together? Yeah. How how do how do I kind of get you to just get rid of? Tom Herbert, the wild baker with yeah. the, with the books, and yeah. how, you know how do we do something that's more a reflection of of what you're doing now? Because that's much more interesting to me than getting you up every year to bake on the fire, which <laughs> yeah. you're very good at. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's in many ways the only way to get creative people doing their best work is to say, "What would you most like to do?" Isn't it? Yeah. Oh Rather well. Than this yeah. is you know this is so so there's some really you know we well I know what I would most li- like. So there seems to be two ways this might go. And I risk showing this now, knowing that I might look like an idiot in six months' time. But it's occurred to me, I wrote a blog back in February when this was very new about how there's two templates. So in the moment, they're both forming quite nicely. So one is the community meal. So it's a pack and maybe that could be, there's some technological things we can do to make it accessible to anyone. So how do you host a meal for your community that builds community because when we eat together we're stronger together and I think it's something that we're finding with the longest table now is a really great time because we're being told by the media that we've never been more divided and I feel there's a real hunger across the it doesn't seem to be restricted to different class or social groups people are gathering together to eat and what we've been able to do is give them another excuse to do that so also, people are desperate to move to beyond this divisiveness. I'm yeah. desperate. I think the whole country is crying out. Yeah, and a, what better way than a meal? So it doesn't have to be fancy or amazing or perfect. Um, but if it's, it just needs to be good. It'll thought about, you know. And uh, Okay, so that's one. That's that, one. And yeah. then the other one is uh, more of a business that might um, be licensed or franchised. And that is... Um, you know, the space we're creating in Brimscombe just outside Stroud is in shipping containers because it's in a leaking warehouse. So fairly soon we'll know what that costs. And if we can make it work and employ 12 people that also own it where we are, then I think it will it ought to work pretty much anywhere. Um, so there's also an idea that, you know, we could open them off as at McDonald's and say to the people of McDonald's that work there, come and work here. We can work out how to serve the food as quickly as possible, um, but you you'll be rewarded for your input and um, and so there's there's a way of doing business that I re- uh, I read as I was in this um, 
um, liminal state between things. Um, I read this book called Reinventing Organisations by Frederick uh, Leilu, and he basically gave words to things that I experienced but didn't know how to proliferate or grow. And they're things that don't fit in the context of a corporate business being a machine with levers, inputs, outputs. And they don't really fit in the uh, more recent version of a business, which is a cooperative, where everyone has one, one person, one vote. There's another way of doing it, which described what I've had that's been successful in my life. And having read it, I thought, I either have to go and work somewhere like this or I need to start somewhere like this. And what I found with Will and the team was people that were just right ready to give it a go. Yes. Well, funny enough, I mean, we must just continue this because I've been feeling that, that actually in my businesses, and, and I, I talk specifically about perhaps um, The Good Life and Camp Glendie, but other things as well, that we need to find more community purpose and we need to find more social enterprise. And, I, and I'm interested not in necessarily having a social enterprise over there, mm behind those doors and, and, yeah. and another business over here, but the idea of trying to meld the two together yeah. a bit more. So the way I've described it is that uh, social enterprise, because lots of people don't know what it is, is having uh, the heart of a charity, but the body of a business. So like the way it's owned, we, we've set up recently the Grace Network, which launches these social enterprises is a community benefit society, which means for a hundred pounds, anyone can be a member and they then vote on the board. So, and if you're one of our youngsters that's come on a programme instead of prison, you know, you can pay that over 10 months, but it's trying to remove the us and themness of a traditional business. And it's so powerful. Yes, I think that's what I'm talking about. You know, the idea that the two can very happily coexist and in fact can be symbiotic as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it also honours the experience of the people in it. So not everyone is equal in it because di different people have got different amounts to offer, but... But that's easy to say. Or no, that I can say that because we have a we're we're trying really hard to find ways where everyone can be heard, regardless of yes, you know. And and actually, the ones we resist the most are the the successful guys that have, you know run big businesses in corporates. Say, oh no, that's not how you do it. You should do it like this. And we talk. no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> screw you. We'll figure this out for ourselves. Um, so th there's a lot about what's ancient in what we're doing. The, uh, the long table is also the refectory for, we kind of see it as a monastery and we've had some, that's yet to be, we were at the formative stage of that. Like, what, what do you mean there? So the businesses together and in this space, we think of it as a monastery. Oh, very interesting. Right, okay. so they have, that would, for anyone looking at from the outside, is best explained by some work by George Ling about seven sacred spaces. So in order for someone to come, as I count myself in this, but very different examples of youngsters and people coming out of addiction and those kind of things, coming out from chaos and trauma uh, into healthy existence, you need, Will's first thought was that the food bank's a bit of a sticking plaster. It just gives people some tin food when they most need it. Now it's horrible that we still need that and it's important that it's still there, but you think we surely could do better than that. And that's why he started with Social Enterprise to offer work for people that have been using the food bank. So uh, Kickoff Stroud and the Furniture Bank were uh, um, first two of those. 
And then work's really important because it, it starts to be part of our identity for lots of particularly young men. Your identity is so important and it can lead you to get into trouble for status and so on. So having a job is a useful thing, but it's, it's only part of the picture. So having somewhere where you can eat together, we know, because, it, it, you know, I come from a family where we always act together and I thought it was something everyone did and it's horrified me that it's not a human right. And two, one of the biggest poverties in where I live is social isolation. People just, they can be as rich as you like, but just totally lonely. So food can bring people together for that. And then... I think that's, I mean, I, I, look, we're going to, yeah. I, yeah, I, I want to wind this up soon, sure. but I think, you know, that, that's a major problem for both the young and the old. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's, um, it's got nothing to do with social status. It, or, or, I mean, it has got, clearly there are, there are different types of this loneliness, yeah. but, but the world where we're all just looking at our phones and buying stuff online yeah. is actually, to my mind, truly terrifying. Yeah. Can I tell you what the last thing, um, one of the best things that's happened recently at the long table is that um, we had our third uh, monthly meal for the local elderly. The local vicar gathers them, the, these um, these people up, and they they come and and it's very different from the other meals we do. And we put chairs out instead of stools, and you have to say things quite loudly, obviously. And they're eating in a shipping container. It's completely bonkers, but they they're really up for it. They're great. And this time, the six year sixes from the local primary school came, and they helped me with the cooking and serving. And then they sat. Uh, one on each table with the elderly and ask them questions and it made no business sense whatsoever <laughs> but it was just like I thought well to be able to offer this some of the banquets that we do in the evening where people that are socially engaged and interested come and they support us by paying what they feel uh, I don't know whether it'll work out but I hope it does because that was just so enjoyable it's, yeah it's it gave so me hope. Cool. I think people feel well, like sometimes what I'm striving for is to do something that makes people feel hopeful and makes connection. So it's something to do with companion and bread. Well, I'm so I mean, grateful it, to Anna that, it, and that she supported it. And also for you, Charlie, that like all those instances over the years where you, you've been a real enabler and an encourager. And I just want to really thank you oh. for that. And, and this time for us, it also represents a much needed holiday for us as a family. And I can't think of anywhere better to be there's no phone signal no um, uh, the, the sun is out the yeah. trees are literally perfect so thank thank you so much to your family for always being such an inspiration and thank showing you. that it's possible and these questions are worth trying to answer also the greatest mayhem that i have ever created was the children's cafe at the good life experience did you ever see that we I had a i mean it. we had a children's cafe that only children were allowed in wow. and only children they did the serving and they did, then they, they, they ordered, and then someone had to serve. And then there was someone adult helping with the cooking, but we didn't really need any cooking because they all just wanted to eat ketchup. And <laughs> it, was, it was absolutely brilliant. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Tom. That's just fantastic. Thank you very much for listening to that. Thank you very much to Tom. See you very soon. Thanks to Jim Friend for editing this, my friend Jim Friend. And I'll be back with another Mavericks podcast just as soon as you can say. I think the Mavericks podcast is really good and I am going to go now and rate it on iTunes. Thanks. Bye.